Good morning. If you will, please turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 128 this morning. Again, in my Bible, that's on page 609. In uh, 2006, a, a famous book kind of sort of started making its way up the uh, you know, most purchased books of the year. In many ways, you can thank Oprah for that. O- Oprah was pushing it hard. And um, you know, it, it's about uh, the author's search of happiness in the midst of some really deep sorrow in her life. And so at the heart of this book is a secret. Actually, that's what the book is called. The book is called The Secret. And in this book, it has quite the lofty claims about how you can gain happiness. I hear, let me quote. According to this author, there isn't a single thing that you cannot do with this secret knowledge. All right, you guys sitting on the, you know, the end of your chairs, right? So here it comes. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. The secret can give you whatever you want. It's quite the promise, huh? So just, just, just imagine for a moment getting anything or everything you've ever hoped for you've ever dreamed for. Isn't that sort of what we think about when we think of happiness? Whatever that thing is that you want, that promotion, that new house, maybe it's relational, material, maybe it's the restoration of a relationship, whatever that is, wouldn't it be great if you could just snap your fingers or just... Think it into existence. In many ways, this is the promise of happiness that's dangled out in our society. I mean, I, I love going to Powell's Books, right? It's like a book lover's dream in Portland. It's like the biggest bookstore in the world or something like that. And you just meander around and there's room after room. You get lost in so many of those rooms. But one of the biggest rooms, self-help. One of the biggest growing rooms as well, right? It's about nutrition, about your finances, about your family. And all of the promises are, if you read this book, here is the secret to happiness. So so we buy gadgets, gizmos, we, we, we read books, all with the promise that if you just practice this formula, if you just read this book, if you just buy this product, you're going to be happy. I think all these self-help books, they're tapping into something really deep within us all. Something about what it means to be human. Uh, Augustine, the early church father, about 1,600 years ago, wrote this, that every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. Or if you fast forward then 1,300 years after Augustine, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote similarly, right? All men seek happiness, without exception. Even Charles Darwin, he even believed that. 
he, he wrote this, that all sentient beings have formed an ability to want to be joyful and have a general principle to be happy. Actually, it goes even deeper if you're an American, right? If you're an American, written in the Declaration of Independence is our happiness, right? Our forefathers wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What are those rights? Life, liberty, happiness. The pursuit of happiness. So from the dawn of time to our present time, we all want to be happy, right? It's not just the author of The Secret. She's just tapping into something to sell books. We all want to be happy. In many ways, that's, that's my assumption this morning. I come here assuming that each and every one of us wants to be happy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the question is, where, where do we find that happiness? Where, where does it come from? And then what does it look like? What does it look like when you found it? For the last few months, we've been studying a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. These were songs that were sung by pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem at different times during the calendar year in order to worship God in Jerusalem for various feasts. There's a diversity of these psalms. And you'll notice that in Psalm 128, which is what I'm going to read in a moment, if you remember from last week, Psalm 127, you're going to see a lot of similarities. Many of the themes of Psalm 127 are picked up in 128. But the big idea is this, okay? Here's the secret to happiness, okay? And I don't want it to be a secret for much longer, so I'm just going to throw it out there. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay me. The secret of happiness is fear. It is. All right, let's go to the text. Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like an olive shoot around the table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So notice there in Psalm 128, right right after the superscription, the Song of Ascents, that first word is blessed. Some of your translations might say happy. Now, we we don't really use blessed that much in our kind of common vernacular, right? I mean, you, you might see like a friend on Instagram taking a picture of themselves in Hawaii and like hashtag blessed. Right? You kind of gag on that. Don't do that. But, but I, th- I think the most common time that we actually say, bless you, is when you sneeze, right? Isn't that the most common? We still do this, right? Someone sneezes, and we just kind of intuitively, naturally, sort of like 
just a, a nicety, we say, bless you. You ever wonder where that came from? It's pretty old. It goes all the way back to the plague. So one of the kind of uh, most uh, prevalent symptoms if you had the bubonic plague was sneezing, or at least they thought that. And so if you sneezed in front of someone, they would say, bless you, meaning you, you might have the plague. You, your, your days might be short. And so in all honesty, it was, a, you know, may health come upon you. May, may you be blessed by God. May you be healed. May you be whole. In many ways, that's, that's the sort of idea that our author picks up here as well. That, that, that is the biblical idea of blessedness, being happy. It's that wholeness. It's fullness. It's happiness, contentment. And then look at what this blessedness is attached to, right? And I'm going to use blessedness and happy interchangeably, right? So, so this happiness is for everyone, right? This is not just for a few. Our text says that blessed or happy is everyone. Everyone who does something particular has fear. Only it's a particular fear, isn't it? It's the fear of the Lord. Now, these days we live in a culture of fear, don't we? I mean, I could get a whiteboard out here and we could just start listing many of our fears, right? Global terrorism, domestic terror- terrorism. I mean, we could think of the things that went on in Atlanta, the, the, the fear of, of maybe just um, being Asian American in America right now. We could list phobias and things that make us anxious, f- fears of being rejected, f- fears revolving comfort. We could just go on and on. We, sometimes my dog starts freaking out when she hears thunder, right? We even fear the weather. So what do we do with these sorts of fears, right? It's weird to think about that our happiness is attached to fear because honestly, if you thought about it, fear is part of the problem, right? Fear is squeezing out our happiness, You fear something or someone or some situation or the possibility of something coming upon you and you think, oh yeah, that's actually making me less happy as I think about those things. It's producing more anxiety, more paranoia. But our text here this morning is pretty clear that fear isn't the problem. It's the object of fear that's the problem. Our, Our world is becoming more anxious, fearful, Neurotic, paranoid, and much of it, or at least some of it, is because it's lost the proper object of fear. The proper object of fear is God. God should be the controlling fear within all of our lives. We all have all these fears, right? Fear is just the the natural process of the feelings that we get when we're out of control. Right? When, when you're walking and it's dark and you hear something and you start fear, fearing, right? Fight or flight, th- those sorts of things. Th- those, are, those are natural things. It's, it means you're weak. It means that there's a threat out there. But what do you do with those, all of those fears that we just live with every day? 
or author tells us that we submit them to a, a reigning fear, a, a greater fear, a higher fear, a more supreme fear, the fear of God. And notice here that, that it's the fear of the Lord, all caps, Lord. That's God's covenantal name. So it's not just that you're to fear this tyrant. No, you're to fear the Lord, the covenantal God who has, who has said, I'm going to bind myself to a people. The God who, who says he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who we are supposed to fear. Now, 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 what is this fear? Like practically, like what does it mean, biblically speaking, to, to fear the Lord? Well, basically it's pretty simple. Fearing the Lord is just living in light of who God really is. God is awesomely, terrifyingly big. God is sovereign. God is the biggest thing that you could ever think of. He is big. And in light of that, we're the opposite, aren't we? We're weak, we're small. And so the fear of the Lord is a, a human's proper response to the, the bigness, the, the, the truth of who God is in his enormity. But then it's not just that. Because God's not just big. He's also gentle, kind, and loving. He, he said that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a people and I'm going to love them. And so here in our text this morning, we, we, we learned that happy are those who fear the Lord, who, who, who then also walk in his ways, which is sort of a, a shorthand to say who take God at his word, who, who walk with him. I mean, just, just think about, you know, walking with someone, taking a walk with a friend, right? Just walking side by side, someone is like a sign of your closeness, of your intimacy. And here, those who fear the Lord have an intimacy with God. They're walking with God, trusting in God. And in some ways, there's a problem in all of this. If you go to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 says that all of us, because of our sin, have walked away from God. So what do we do in the midst of that? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all, like sheep, have walked away from God. Well, Isaiah 53 is really clear that as we do this, and one of the kind of the prevalent symptoms of how we walk away from God is we seek happiness in lots of things other than God, right? We seek our ultimate happiness in comforts or in money or in status or in ourselves. But Isaiah 53 is really, really clear that though we have walked away from God, God has not walked away from us. Actually, far from that, God has sent his son who the iniquities of us all would come upon him. And so you can think of the fear of the Lord as sort of nothing short of, a, of the, the, the rest and security a sinner has in God. It's, it's the comfort of living in the safety of God's love. 
The fear of the Lord is sort of the, the, the prevalent idea of saying, I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going I'm to view God in all of his characteristics, in all of his attributes. I'm going to think of him rightly and then respond to him appropriately. It's a, a God-centeredness that shapes every area of our lives. So, so you, if you want happiness, just looking at verse 1, if you want happiness, it comes through fear. And what that means is, it means that in all of the various objects of our fear, it says we take those and we open our hands and we say the ultimate fear is actually not threat of violence. The, the ultimate fear isn't rejection or embarrassment at that group project. The ultimate fear is not that you're not going to get that promotion or that the house that you put an offer on won't, won't go through. Those are not our greatest fears. The greatest fear is that God in our sin would not forgive us. But in the gospel, we have a God who himself is the blessed one who then takes on the curse of sin and then gives us his blessing. That is the greatest object of our worship that then rightly should disseminate our various fears. The Puritans talked about this, that sin was disordered loves. And happiness comes when we disorder our happiness. We're going to see in a moment that um, not just is um, Psalm 128 uh, sort of a uh, the secret of finding happiness in, in the fear of the Lord, but then we're going to see a description of what it looks like. Like, what does happiness actually look like in just the ordinariness of life? But in order to make sense of that, in order to actually be happy with things like marriage and children and, and work and, and the church, the, those ordinary things of life, we got to get the order right. And the order is the fear of the Lord first and then have that fear actually affect all of our other spheres, all of our other happiness. So just by way of application, it, it, I don't think this is teaching us that we shouldn't have fears or we shouldn't be honest with our fears or, or we should just hide our fears and pretend they don't exist. I don't think that's what this means at all. I do think this means that we're honest with our fears and we mix faith with fears. And then we talk to one another. That, that, that is one of the privileges and one of the blessings of the church. Because we can stand shoulder to shoulder and say, yeah, I'm fearful. I'm anxious. This is what my fear is. As we then point one another to God and who he is and the various promises that he's given to us to weather the storms of life. Because in one sense, we live, statistically speaking, in the safest time that's ever been known. Statistically speaking, we, we are very, very safe when you think of the history of the world. And yet, we don't feel safe, do we? Maybe it's because we haven't thought rightly about how God and fearing God and walking in his ways will then affect our other fears. So I encourage you, 
this week in your small groups, maybe discipleship groups, as you go on walks, just talk about those fears. What are those fears? Be honest with those fears. And then encourage each other to put your faith in the God who can handle and carry your fears. Now, second, what what does this happiness look like? Go go, go to verse 2. What we have in verse 2 all the way through the end of the psalm are four pictures. Four pictures. Work, marriage, children, and the people of God, the church. So verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Last week, I don't know if you remember, but in Psalm 127... And, and you can look there. Um, it says that, that work is anxious toil. There in Psalm 127, verse 2. That's not what this is talking about, is it? The work in our psalm here isn't anxious toil. It's, it's good. It's meaningful. It's, it's labored that's not in vain. You see, if you go back to the created order, we were meant to work and rest. I think so often what we do is we kind of trade work and rest for toiling and leisure. You ever done that? Like you're off from work and you you just binge on Netflix or use something in leisure and you think that that is going to make you restful when you're like, I am not restful at all having done that. We're meant to work and rest, but so often we just trade it for toiling and leisure. But that's not what's going on here. This is saying that As you order your lives rightly, you can enjoy your labor. In Adam and Eve, back in the garden, God called them to do things, to work, to accomplish things, to cultivate the land. And what sin did in Genesis 3, well, it made work toilsome. That was one of the curses. But now, as we fear the Lord, as we think rightly about him and order our lives accordingly, we can enjoy the works of our hands. In many ways, I think that this is a picture of the Lord sort of reversing one of the curses of the fall. Personally, I love summer. And one of the reasons I love summer is I love to spend a a Saturday in the yard just, just, you know, mowing the grass, pulling out weeds. And then I just love sitting on my deck and just, you know, a cup of lemonade, just looking at what I did with my hands, right? What I did with my hard work, right? You can just smell it. You, you cannot see all the weeds. Don't, don't you just hate, like, staring out the window, just seeing weed after weed after weed? And then you work for two, three, four hours in the yard, and you're like, I did that. It's beautiful. And you just rest in the enjoyment of beauty, right? You, you do this with everything, right? You, you spend all day cooking, and then you sit down, with your family, to enjoy food. You can enjoy and find happiness in work. God created us to work. It's a good thing. And here's a picture of people working and finding joy and happiness and blessing from their hard work. Now, the second picture, verse 3, marriage. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. The picture here is of a wife of a, as a vine, right? But not just any vine, a, a fruitful vine. Now, this connection of fruitful vine is 
definitely connected to children. We see that um, as you just keep reading, right? It's, it's connected to children, but it's, I think it's more than that. It's also connected to, to, to her work, to her labor. She is fruitful. She blesses the house, blesses her husband by her hard labor. And more than that, this word also shows up in other places in the Old Testament as sort of a metaphor for beauty. So it's like, this woman's like the trifecta, all right? She's beautiful inside and out, right? She works hard. She labors hard. You sort of get the, the pun there, right? And she's beautiful, and her husband delights in her. And again, this takes us right back to Genesis, right? God created Adam. He's naming the animals, and it's good, good, good. You got this repetitive theme over and over again. It's good, it's good. And for the first time in the history, not good enters the story. It's not good that Adam is alone. And so God makes someone like Adam and not like Adam. And that, and enter Eve, right? The mother of the living. Isn't that interesting? Men, women, just just think about this for a second. Here's Adam in the garden. Sin has not entered the story. He's walking with God, having fellowship with God, enjoying God. And it's still not good. And so Eve becomes the mother of the living. That's, that's the sort of image here as well. And, and here, it's not just that Eve, back in the garden, is the mother of the living, and so her, her blessing to Adam is just about children. It's more than that, right? It's much more than that. There's companionship and friendship and joy. So the second picture is just the joy and blessing of marital intimacy, of marriage. And then the third picture, if you just keep reading, is children, right? Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. No, we talked about this last week, right? That just the blessing of children, that children make you rich in God's economy. And here, children are likened to olive shoots, right? It's a symbol of longevity and productivity. That, that children shoot up, right? We say that from time to time, right? You don't see a child for, for, for you know, a few months and you're like, what are you feeding? That, right? They're just growing like weeds. We, that's, that's the idea here, right? Eventually, children, as you feed them, as they sleep, they grow and they become productive. And that's the third image, right? And then if you go down to verse 6, it's not just the blessing of children, right? That, that blessing rolls down to grandchildren, right? The, the images of a, you know, a, a grandfather or a grandmother with a grandchild on their knee as they read a bedtime story. What a blessing that is. How much happiness can be found in that sort of relational connection. And then there's a fourth. There's a fourth picture. Starting in verse 5. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children peace beyond Israel. Did you notice that, you know, that this happiness, these pictures of happiness start, you know, with working. They start sort of individual and they're moving out into society, right? It's moving out corporately, 
So it's the work of your hands, it's your marriage, it's your family, and now it's the people of God. Prosperity in Jerusalem, where the temple was, where they could worship God. Peace beyond Israel, which is a, a synonym for God's people. Blessing now is calibrated not just to the individual or to the family or to the children. Now it's society. It's, it's the church. It's the people of God. That, that we can find happiness and joy and blessing within the church. Do you guys know this, the old hymn, I love thy kingdom, Lord? Anyone know that old hymn? Uh, this past week I came across it and I just couldn't stop listening. And I, I, I'll read a few lines of it, and you'll recognize it, I promise. It's an old hymn, and it sort of begins this way. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eyes, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils given, till toils and cares shall end. Isn't that beautiful? The idea of Just praying for the church, praying for the prosperity of the people of God, praying for the spiritual and emotional and psychological and physical well-being of the people of God. I think one of the tragedies of this last year has been just how many churches have closed already. Churches are splitting. People are leaving churches. And here we have this pilgrim just praying for the prosperity of the people of God. Not just, not just, not just like economic. This is everything. This is emotional prosperity and physical prosperity and spiritual prosperity. This is the prosperity of evangelism and discipleship. Are we praying like that? You know, when... We, we, we very much take it for granted, uh, just all of the various churches that, that we can go and we can attend. And, and when I was overseas recently, and there just really isn't, there's like one church in a, you know, millions of people city. We're very much blessed. We often don't think it like that, but there are so many places in the world where it's even hard to find a church. Well, those are the four pictures of blessedness, of happiness. But I sort of lied. There's four pictures, but really, there's four pictures, but there's two biblical allusions, and I hinted at them before. The first allusion is actually Eden, right? It's the Garden of Eden. So so you've got this this image of working and tilling tilling the land. You've got this image of of marriage, of Adam and Eve. You've got this image of children, be fruitful and multiply. Really, what he's saying is, as you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, it's a little bit like Eden. You get a taste of Eden. So if you want to know what happiness looks like under the fear of the Lord, it looks a little like Eden. It feels a little bit like Eden. There is an echo of Eden even as we live east of Eden. But, but that's not the only biblical illusion. There's, there's one more, and that's in verses 5 and 6. 
We have Zion, prosperity, Jerusalem, peace. Here, the, the, the sort of biblical connection isn't Eden, but it is Edenic. It's Revelation 21 and 22. It's the last book of the Bible. I, I think the book of Revelation gets a, a bad rap. Actually, here's my plug. In about a month, I'm in the men's uh, Bible study. I'm going to teach through Revelation. So don't fire me. I, I, I don't think in, in, in some sense uh, it's all that complicated when you just start thinking about it. Though there's symbols, though you know, there's apocalyptic language. Really, the book of Revelation is all about happiness. The book of Revelation is all about happiness, all about how the church can be happy. Do you know the book of Revelation is sort of structured by seven blessed kind of sentences? Seven times John says, pronounces blessing on the church. Let me just read them. Notice how eerily similar they are to our psalm. Chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it from this time that's near. Blessed is he who walks in God's word. Chapter 14, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds, for their deeds follow them. Chapter 16, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Chapter 19, and the angel said, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the resurrection. Which then culminate, those are five of them, in the last two blessings in the last book, or the last chapter of the book. Verse 7, chapter 22. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Seven times the book of Revelation tells us how to be perfectly blessed and perfectly happy. And it's the fear of the Lord, isn't it? In the book of Revelation, Christ completes his victory over sin and establishes his eternal rule and happiness comes as a consequence for all those who walk in his ways and hear and heed the message. In many ways, I think the struggle is simple, right? We all want to be happy, but we have this tension inside of us, this sort of paradox. Some days we're just not. We, we come to church and someone says, hey, how are you doing? And we just so desperately want to say, not great. But we just say, we're fine. And then there's other days where we feel really happy. We're enjoying the world. We're enjoying, you know, just driving and seeing Mount Rainier right there. And it produces happiness. And it almost feels a little bit like the echo of Eden. We live in that tension. Because this isn't Eden. We've been cast out of Eden. But even as we're living east of Eden, even as we've been cast from Eden, we're still haunted by Eden. And not only that, but because we've left Eden because of our sin, the glorious truth of the gospel is that Eden has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
and bursting forth from that true and better Eden is new life. Greater life than was pictured in Eden. But but we're still going to have those bad days. We're going to still have those not happy days. And so as we live east of Eden, we need to realize that our true ultimate happiness is always going to be eschatological. It'll come in the end. And so we live in the present day clinging to Jesus, who is our happiness, our ultimate happiness, as we await eschatologically the day when he returns. Happiness is possible, right? You don't have to read any self-help books to know that. Happiness is possible, and the secret is simple. Order your lives well. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. That's not like terror. It's not the, 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 the terror of living under a tyrant. It's the joy of living under a good, caring, loving king. And as you live in that kingdom, under that good rule, know that ultimately whatever happens in the kingdom, the king is aware of. He knows what's going on. And you can trust your fears, whatever they may be, into the sovereign hand of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to you with so many fears. You alone know how many fears that we have um, within our lives, our minds, our hearts. We don't pretend that we are fearless, Lord. But, but, but Lord, we, we do come to you in faith. We do come to you knowing that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We do come to you knowing that you are a good God. We, we do come to you knowing that whatever you ordaineth is good. And we do come to you knowing that we can have rest in you, spiritual and emotional, through Jesus Christ. And we know that whatever we're toiling in, whatever fears we have, we know that one day, all of that toiling, all of those fears will be no more. Thank you. Thank you for the little tastes of Eden that we get to experience as we make our way from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.